0: I'm going to go ahead and give you a spoiler alert. I feel okay about it because this movie came out more than two years ago. So if you haven't seen it by now, (laughs) you're out of luck. There's a movie called Brooklyn. Uh, It was a great movie. I like it for a lot of reasons. Um, It is a great old school romantic love story if there ever was one and um, there's, it follows this girl in Ireland, and what happens is, is she's looking in post-World War II Ireland, and is rather depressed. The prospects of, of industry are bleak. The prospects of marriage and, and maritable men are just not happening, and so her sister, recognizing her plight, and they have this great relationship. So at Great Sacrifices, her sister writes to this priest in New York City, uh, who was from Ireland, And said, would you sponsor my sister into the United States for her immigration? Well, he agrees and sister convinces her to go and so she embarks on this journey. Well, you can imagine what it's like. She takes the ship and gets really seasick. She gets there and is really homesick as every letter pours in. She's just reminded of what she doesn't have. It's hard beginnings and, and I feel like it's such a timely message because when you have an immigration influx and you're you're just so hungry for home. You're hungry for the familiar. You just want things uh, to be like it was and to just have some of those creature comforts that you enjoyed back home. She finds a job and she's got kind of a, a difficult working relationship with her boss and it's just not going well. Well one night at a at an Irish gathering because the Irish tend to get you know the, the you find people who come from birds of a feather flock together and at this dance she meets an Italian boy and all the Italians you normally keep together except that he has this thing he likes Irish girls. Well, he's a great gentleman and they have this courtship that unfolds and actually her life in America sort of turns a corner and they develop a really neat relationship. But then her sister back home in Ireland dies. It's this tragic news and her mom's not doing well. She wasn't able to get back for the funeral but she felt like she needed to return and the Irish boyf- or the, uh, the Italian boyfriend doesn't want her to go because he's afraid she'll never come back. So they wed right before she set sail to go back. And they just did a simple civil ceremony and they kept it quiet, but he just wanted to let her know that she was loved. Well, she goes back and starts caring for mom, takes a part-time job, <clears throat> and everyone seems to be conspiring to keep her around. and and offering her now full-time employment. And and the the landscape of her home country has changed and there's a much more dynamic social scene and she actually gets introduced. Everyone's trying to fix her up but she meets a really great guy. And meanwhile, no one knows that she's married except someone finds out and, and does a little investigative work. So it finally comes out. So now she's got two countries that she loves, two men that she's being rather attracted to And she decides what's best. And the the end of it is her back in the arms of her secretly wed Italian husband back in America. It is such a good story, but it tells of what happens I think with a lot of us, is that sometimes we just wanna go back to the place that's familiar. Sometimes we wanna go back to the place where it's just a little bit easier, and sometimes we associate being familiar with what's being easier. But the reality is, she created two lives for herself, and she couldn't go back to what she had left because what she had left wasn't the same place anymore. Home existed in her mind, but it had changed so much. But what had also changed is she was no longer the same person. So to go back and just resort to life as it was, she was a different person now. And the only thing left to do is move forward. We started a series. And Shannon, did you have some handouts that you wanted to pass out? You can just kind of offer those to the kids and maybe some crayons or something like that. I know you want to listen to me, you guys. And, and Molly, I know you always have these really interesting insights, and your mom tells me what you're learning uh, when Pastor Dave talks. So don't, don't tune me out completely. But if we have some things that you want to pass out, you can do that. Um, so I wanted to do a series. And uh, it's a series that focuses on Lent. And um, let's just color quietly, though, okay? Crowns don't talk. Okay, thanks. Um, uh, the series is called From That Time On because in the scriptures, particularly in the book of Matthew, we have these key moments where Matthew the writer at least three times says from this time on and what it represents is something has happened that's tying in to something that has preceded it. There's a strategic pivot or a shift that Matthew wants us to know about in the ministry and the mission Of Jesus. But why I think it's so significant for us is because from that time on we are often in need of connecting what's happening in our lives with what has happened in the past. And if there's one thing that happens to us most of the time is that we encounter either great difficulty or even great prosperity, or great confusion. But there's something that we encounter tomorrow, this week, next month, this year, that interrupts us in our path. And the thing that we need to do is to be able to connect the dots with what God has been doing all along. In fact, what God wants to do is connect the dots of our life for every lesson learned, for every obstacle that's been overcome, for every hardship that we've had to endure. He wants to connect the dots of our lives so that he can deepen our faith. And here's the thing, take us further. The last thing he wants us to do is to retreat. The last thing he wants us to do in the face of prosperity or hardship or uncertainty is to cause us to be still. In fact, the great metaphor for faith in all of scripture is the metaphor of journey. And journey, if we say that we're on one, and I believe that we all are, the great metaphor for faith is journey. And journey is always active, never static. It requires next steps. So if there's one thing that we have to understand about the journey we're on is that we have to manage our expectations. We have to manage the struggle. We have to manage the prosperity in light of what God's doing. And the only way to do that is to connect what's happening today with what's happened in the past. And if we know God in any way, we understand that God has been faithful through the ages. And one wise gentleman once said to me when I was trying to discern what the will of God is right here, right now. He says, David, if you could find God in the sequence of your life, it might be more clear what he's saying today. I wanna encourage you today, I have a couple of actual points to make. And if you just wanna grab a bulletin and take notes and jot some of these things down, because I think this is something that is relatively needed in our lives. Now, we're in a season called Lent. Lent is a time of self-denial. Lent is a time of process. Lent is a time to do maybe emotional, physical, spiritual inventory as we lead up to Easter and the representation of new life availability for all of us. And I'm not talking about being born again. I'm talking about renewal of all things. I'm talking about being born again and again and again. And so jot down a couple of things. The first thing I would, you know, obviously I just mentioned is the idea that learning to find God in the sequence has everything to do with connecting the dots of our current circumstances with our past experiences. Because the question is always, God, how could you allow this to happen? God, what are you doing today? God, why would you allow this? What he's wanting to do is connect those dots. So uh, I think this is relatively significant for all of us to consider. This is the second time that Matthew writes to us in Matthew 16, and and what we get is this key turning point, and Jesus now begins to predict his death. So we're kind of in the middle. There's 28 chapters in the book of Matthew. In chapter 16, it says, from that time on, and he says these words. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now this is really significant, but it's one of those things that's a key hinge pin moment. So the question first is, if this is what's happening now in the moment, and it's not meeting their expectation, it's coming as a surprise to them, whatever the case might be, the question is, What's happened? What has preceded that? What has led up to this time, to this place, to this announcement? So what's happened chronologically is that Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's fed the 4,000. He's healed the faith of a Canaanite woman. What's significant about a Canaanite? Non-Jewish. Gentile. Jesus is now saying this is a gospel. This is a God who's for everyone, not just a Jewish monopoly. And then if that's not enough, the Pharisees and the religious leaders demand from him a sign, were you not just paying attention to those feedings, to those healings? And then he takes a little journey with the disciples and he has a little one-on-one conversation where now they see him as Messiah. And as they declare, we believe that you're the Messiah. He says, hey, now that you guys know that, don't tell anyone. Okay, this is really bad marketing. If you're trying to get the word out about who you are, and he just kind of of asks them to just kind of tuck that away, thinking, what is Jesus up to? Here's the shift that goes on. This marks this new emphasis in Jesus' ministry. What's happening now in Matthew 16, from that time on, he's saying to them, he's moving away from teaching the crowds in parables and he's wanting to teach the disciples really and preparing them for not only his coming suffering but his death and ultimately his physical absence. Is this basic spiritual parenting 101? One day you're going to be on your own. One day you're going to have to do your own laundry. One day you're going to have to cast out your own demons and heal your own sick. One day It's going to be on you and so he's trying to prepare them and he does this shift from not just speaking to the masses, really focusing in now on the disciples. Now this isn't the first time that he alludes to his death but it's the first time that he comes out and specifically and openly points to it with the disciples and that the idea is the time for symbols and veiled illusions about his ultimate departure because of his death resurrection, and ascension is over. Now he's going to speak more plainly about the things to come. And now this is where it gets kind of rubber meets the road. This is where people start to see things and light bulbs are coming on and they don't always like what they're hearing. So the first observation I can make from this time on is this. When we connect what's happened in the past with what's happening right now in front of us, Maybe the first thing we can say is suffering can be our greatest teacher. If there is a word that you might need to hear today because you're in a struggle right now, it's understand this. I think suffering and struggle is a greater teacher than prosperity and ease. Could I get an amen? I mean, who's had this experience, right? We go, oh, that was a lesson learned. I wish I could have taken that advice earlier or something. The idea is we might never want to experience it again, but if we're honest, we can look back over the greatest difficulty of our life and go, huh, I would never want to go through that again. But I learned. Wisdom was gained. Redemption was experienced. God was made known. And somehow our faith might have even grown without even realizing it because we've seen the faithfulness of God. (laughs) See, what we're doing from that time on is we're trying to connect what's happening today with what God has been doing all along. What we're doing tonight, friends, is finding God in the sequence of our life. And the first thing I would suggest to you is that we can find, realize that struggle can be our greatest teacher. Now, Jesus teaches the disciples about what must happen, and they completely misunderstand him because... (laughs) there was the most popular comment of the expectation of Christ that they would gain in his presence of messiahship, Jewish sovereignty. That they would gain maybe more land because that's what they had before Rome came to power. That they would be able to maybe have some financial and political and and, and other kind of establishment. And here comes Jesus talking about suffering and death. So the expectation wasn't being met and they kept having this misunderstanding. So the question is, is what is it that we expect of God? What is it in your life that you feel like is an unmet need or expectation of Jesus? Sometimes, and and I'm just being honest, does it feel like Jesus is so underwhelming? (laughs) Does it start to feel like we get a little tempted to lose faith? Maybe to increase doubt because God doesn't seem that concerned or that interested or that close. Actually, he is in the midst of struggle, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of uncertainty. All I'm suggesting is struggle can be a great teacher. And the only thing we need to remember is don't lose faith. God's here, whether we see him, sense him or not, he's present. So let me just go on because there's this conversation that unfolds. So when Peter, who's always kind of been the loudmouth, hears this word, Peter says, and he pulls Jesus aside. You can almost hear him and he come on a bro-to-bro talk. And, and Peter says these words. Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter as if and he says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, merely human concerns. So if you're one of the lieutenants in the ministry of Jesus and his description to you is to get behind him and to say, that's okay, that's okay. We will make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Exercise those lungs. Oh, little pinch. That's okay. So he has this moment where he says, get behind me, Satan. So now you're Peter, and you're having this moment in front of you, and you're like trying to connect the dots, except that he's got this expectation of who Christ is supposed to be, and Jesus is talking about going a different direction. Keep in mind that Peter is what's called a zealot. Zealots were ultra-nationalistic. They were Jerusalem and, and, and the nation of Israel first and foremost. So the idea was we're gonna maintain and regain our sovereignty and Jesus is our ticket there. I'm confessing you're the Messiah and you're gonna lead this revolution. Second thing I would simply say is when we connect something new with what's happened, we learn that failure is an event but it's never supposed to be a person. Failure is an event and it's never supposed to be a person. From this time on, we might have made a mistake. From this time on, we might have some regret. From this time on, we might trying to be undoing, living down some bad parenting or bad business decisions or personal ethical choices. Failure is always an event in God's eyes, never a person. Why? Because you bear the image of God. He would not look at His masterpiece and His creation as a failing. Now, two examples illustrate this really well. First is Peter himself. Think about Peter, he's a loudmouth. he's chopping off a guy's ear in the garden, and he's told that he's going to deny Christ three times, which he faithfully delivers on. What does he do? He goes off and he weeps bitterly at the fulfillment of the prophetic word over his life. But failure to Peter from this time on wasn't that I'm a failure. He was able to turn a corner and go, yep, blew it there, blew it there, blew it there. But that is not the definition of my life. My identity isn't as a denier. My identity isn't as a loudmouth. My identity isn't as a violent militant. My identity is in my relationship with Christ. And who stands up in the early church post-Jesus era? Peter is the most outspoken one. When Right after Pentecost, Peter turns the corner and starts to lead with the most amount of influence in the early church. It's a beautiful redemptive story of someone who didn't let failure become the definition of his life and just limited it to a few events along the way, not a person. Conversely, let me give you another example of one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot. There's two things that I began to dive into as I was studying this. This is fascinating to me. The first thing is, do you remember what Judas sold out Jesus for? 30 silver pieces. Do you know what 30 silver pieces, I didn't know this. 30 silver pieces, and the Hebrew readers would have understood this. 30 silver pieces was the going rate for a slave, either to replace one or to buy one. So when he brokers this deal with the religious establishment, the Hebrew readers would have understood that the master that he's given his life to, he's selling out for what, cheaply, for what amounts to slave replacement. I've never known that, but that puts Things in a whole different context. Now, the second thing that's really interesting about this is some scholars believe that Judas, like Peter, was also a part of the zealot clan because of his name, Judas Iscariot. Here's what I'm thinking that when Judas is listening to Jesus' predicting his death, his suffering, He's going, whoa, 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 the trajectory of Israel is always upward, not downward. So when you come speaking a language of your demise, your surrender, that's not what we zealots believe. I think it came to the point where he's like, whoa, 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 Have you ever been at work and you see the trajectory and you're like, I can't stay at this place any longer. I see where this is going. I see the layoffs coming, I'm next. Or you see the corruption or the unethical behavior and you're like, I'm getting off crazy train, right? What what I think happened to Judas is is he was buying into the Messiahship of Jesus until Jesus start, from this time on, he couldn't process the information. And so what happened to Judas? He defined that failure was a person because ultimately at Jesus' crucifixion, he goes off and he takes his own life. (coughs) Judas never learned that failure is an event, not a person. And he couldn't forgive himself. His grief overcame him. See, mistakes will be made and God knows it. Failure and shortcomings are actually allowed because of his son and his grace. But in God's eyes, failure is not supposed to be a person. Please, please build that into your theology. Please build that into your understanding of who you are in light of who Christ is. The third thing I would simply say is this. Um, well, this is the last part of that passage out of um, Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. See, when Jesus predicts his own death and he confuses some and, and really disappoints many, he illustrates that new life can be found in surrender. Surrender. To all the Americans gathered in this room tonight, let me give you this word. You don't have to win in God's economy. Jesus illustrates here. You don't have to have the last word. You don't have to come out on top. You don't have to get the corner office. You don't always have to be right. What Jesus is illustrating is that you can actually win in the end by surrender. So who's your audience, right? Letting go in God's economy is actually necessary. Confession is actually needed. And even sacrificing leads to winning in God's rule and his reign. I wanna share with you a a two and a half minute audio clip. There's been so many school shootings uh, throughout the years, but this happened in about 2006. And it was a horrific shooting that occurred in a schoolhouse in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It was a a young man who went into an Amish one-room schoolhouse. I don't know if you vaguely remember those details. And it was horrific what happened. He took the lives of five children and then his own life as well, but he injured some of the others. But the Amish community is a distinct community who chooses to live by a countercultural value system. They have their own rhythms that they choose to live by, separate, distinct, and even peculiar, that it looks unimaginable, but the only thing I could say is, in the end, we understand what we encounter today in trying to connect the dots of our lives is that surrender can actually lead to winning. Imagine if you were the parent of the child who goes in and were the one left behind after your kid shot up this room. Listen to the words of a lady by the name of Terry, the mother of the shooter, and how her story unfolds.
1: As I turn on the radio, on the way there, the newscaster was reporting that there had been a shooting at the local Amish schoolhouse. By that time, I was at my son's home, and I saw my husband and the state trooper standing right in front of me as I pulled in. And I looked at my husband. He said, it was Charlie. That week, we had a very private funeral for our son, but as we went to the gravesite, we saw 30 to 40 Amish start coming out from around the side of the graveyard. And they surrounded us like a crescent and love just emanated from them. I will never forget the devastation caused by my son. I mean, especially in the situation with Rosanna. is the most injured of the survivors. Her injuries were to her head She is now 15, still tube fed and in a wheelchair. And she does have seizures. And when it gets to be this time of year, as we get closer to the anniversary date, she seizes more. And that's certainly not the life that this little girl should have lived. So I asked if it would be possible that I might come and help with Rosanna once a week. So I read to her. I bathe her, dry her hair. Does Rosanna know who you are, Terry? I believe Rosanna does know who I am. I can't say that for 100% certainty. I just sense that she does know. One of the fathers the other night, he said, none of us would have ever chosen this. But the relationships that we have built through it, you can't put a price on that. And their choice to allow life to move forward was quite a healing balm for us. And I think it's a message the world needs.
0: Hmm. That's a picture of Terry with Dolores, Rosanna's mother. Imagine finding fellowship, finding community, the chance to serve alongside where she walks into a home weekly to care for Rosanna It was your child that did this to their child. The gospel is good news, but it doesn't always make sense. But when we understand that struggle can be our greatest teacher, that failure is an event, it's not supposed to be a person in God's eyes, and that surrender actually can lead to new life, now that's the gospel. That's good news. We're in a season of Lent, which doesn't always make sense, but we understand that the resurrection is not, is not just possible one time, it's possible for all times and as often as needed as we lead up to Resurrection Sunday. Jesus had some more countercultural words when he said, In John 14, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. See, Jesus outlines for us this path of salvation. And he's connecting the dots of prosperity and adversity and confusion of our life. Because what he's saying is new life is always within reach. Whatever today's circumstances are, God remains faithful. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, remind us of your faithfulness often and much. Remind us of who you are. May your presence occupy (laughs) our current thoughts so that we can just encounter difficulty. We can encounter success and still not lose sight of the author and the perfecter of our faith. Help us to write a new narrative in a broken humanity. Help us to experience your goodness and your redemption regardless of the circumstances, but not just receive that, make us vessels of that. I pray that our story would be one of generosity in a world of scarcity. I pray that we would have a story of hospitality in a world of alienation and separation. I pray that we would be a community of compassion where we're prevails. I pray that we would be people who learn how to renewal even though our margins feel exhausted. May we be a peculiar community because simply we know you and we know the gospel is always good news and we can see you authoring and perfecting our faith because you remain faithful. Gosh, Lord we celebrate who you are in our lives and we give you praise in advance. Say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name. All God's people said.